Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an war, sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Hello, and welcome back to the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and we will presently be joined by Chris Osmar. We're also fortunate enough to be graced by the presence of Katrin Paler this week. Katrin is the author of The Third Reich's Intelligence Services, The Career of Walter Schellenberg, and has been so good to join us to chat about the fine art of writing history. For those of you who are interested in Katrin's work, you can check out an interview I did with her a few weeks back for the New Books Network. In that discussion, she talked about the details of her new book from Cambridge University Press and about the institutional history of the SS Political Intelligence Service, the SD, or what later came to be known as Office 6 of the Reich Security Main Office. For those of you who have followed the show, you will be interested to know that their boss, Walter Schellenberg, actually became Reinhard Heydrich's right-hand man and helped reorganize the RSHA. There's a lot of intrigue surrounding this and not to mention the operations in Italy, so go check out the show notes if you're interested. Katrin was also part of the Independent Historians Commission on the German Foreign Office and contributed to the well-known and hotly debated Das Amt. During the last interview, Katrin and I got to chatting about the wide range of sources that she's worked with, because obviously I was interested to work with the Historians Commission, which led us into the finer points of working with police records and trying to read through the lines of memoirs and other post-war court cases. We had so much fun talking about that, she decided to come on today to continue the discussion with Chris, and so when you come into the episode, you'll find we talk a little bit about her background, uh, we do a brief overview of our new book, but that the meat of our discussion is about how historians deal with sources, particularly when you're trying to catch a slippery fish like Schellenberg or someone trying to duck the hangman's noose. If you've ever wondered how history is written and the dirty secrets of the guild, this is the episode for you. We hope you have as much fun listening as we did making it, but without further ado, the discussion. So, Katrin, thanks for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. So, uh, before we dive right into discussing the sources and all the good, fun stuff, uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? I teach German history, European history, German history at Illinois State University in normal Illinois. And I write on Nazi Germany, on intelligence history, on history and memory, on museums. My book is on um, the Reich Security Main Office and focuses on the foreign intelligence branch and deals with ideology and intelligence and foreign policy to quite some extent. So how did you get your start? What is it that drew you to looking at Office 6 or intelligence or even just the history of the Third Reich in general? 
the the history of the Third Reich in general, I, I think, has to do with me um, having been born in Germany, ha- having grown up in Germany. So that is certainly, you know, in the water, pun intended. Uh, and so, so, so that's where, where I started. And I think we have talked about that before. Um, I wrote my MA thesis in Germany on the resistance on the white rose and got that one out of my system for good. So when I came to the U.S. where I did my Ph.D., I was interested in the, you know, Nazi intellectuals, which assembled in the SD, the Security and Intelligence Service. And from there, it was a small step to, you know, one of the one of the big guys, so the leaders of the various offices, it's best or Ohlendorf or Schellenberg. And I focused on Schellenberg and that obviously then since he was the head of the foreign intelligence section, led me more into led me into thinking more about foreign intelligence and studying foreign intelligence. I understand that you were involved in a historian's commission as well. Is that right? Yes, I was I was involved with um Das Amt. So the big to-do about the German Foreign Office, which came out of the, the, the big scandal in the, when was it, early 2000s. So the German Foreign Office, the Auswärtige Amt, then um, commissioned a study of the Foreign Office during the Nazi era. And thereafter, it was an international commission, so it involved German historians, Israeli historians, and U.S. historians, and a bunch of researchers, writers. So, um, yeah, I was involved with that one on the U.S. side, um, meaning that a small part of that big book um, I wrote. And it was actually quite an interesting project, I mean, to be involved with that and to work in this international commission. And obviously there's always um, some tension going on. And as you might recall, there was quite some to-do about the book after it came out. Mm. Um and whatever one wants to say about the, the book as a whole, it certainly, you know, p- pushed the debate and let people to think about certain issues anew. What I found interesting about the debate um, that, that happened is that it was very much focused on the Nazi era. The part we were writing, or I was involved with, was it was the immediate post-war period, and most of the debate was about um, problems in the section on Nazi Germany. But those problems, um, I, I didn't think were all that tremendous, and they certainly led people to back to the documents, having another look, having another look at, at how we evaluate what's going on there. So, you know... All things considered, it was an, was an interesting experience, to say the least. So did this work with the Independent Historians Commission lead you into your work on the intelligence, or is this a separate project? Oh, that, that was a separate project. So I, I wrote my dissertation um, on on Office 6, and then I was in the revision process and, and reconsidering certain things and, and bringing in new documents and all of that. And in the middle of that... Um, Peter Hayes, at, uh, then still at Northwestern, asked me whether I was interested in, in joining the team, which I was because it was interesting work. Um, and I had done stuff like that before. As a grad student, I worked for History Associates Incorporated, which was is one of those private history firms, one of the very few. 
And there in the late 90s, early 2000s, I was involved with um, research regarding Nazi gold and slave labor. So I had a bit of experience in the doing good research for hire. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know whether whether Peter Hayes had that in mind, but I, I felt comfortable doing this project because I had done s- similar stuff before. So you've you've ended up working with a whole variety of sources because of all this exposure to all these different projects at this point. Yes, uh, I mean I'm, I'm I I yeah, that's what it boils down to. I was talking to a colleague about exactly that the other day, actually at a bar. I don't know. We, I think we need better topics for the bar. Um, <laughs> but, I disagree. Um, yeah, geeks unite. Um, <laughs> but, but, but you know, talking about the the many different things I have looked at for different projects for high end for my own projects over the years, it's it's quite a bit. I mean, there are not that many people who worked with certificates of necessity at the National Archives, um, which is which are documents I worked with when I did EPA um, EPA super site super fund research in the late nineties. So, yeah, I've looked at a lot of strange things. Well, and you use some pretty interesting and particularly tricky sources in your book as well. Maybe could you give us just a, a very broad outline of uh, what you talk about in your book, and then maybe we can start to pick your brain a bit about the sources that you've used for it. The, the very broad outline, the nutshell version is that it's basically two smaller books in one big book. One is a biographic treatment of Schellenberg, who was the head of Office 6. Uh, so this is the biographical component. And then there is an institutional history of Office 6. And there the question is, you know, what 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 in the world are they doing? How do they conceptualize foreign intelligence? Um, how do they conduct foreign intelligence? during the war mostly, but slightly in the pre-war period. So those are the two elements bringing this to, and I'm trying to bring that together in one book. So I sometimes talk about it or uh, 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 liking it to a bread with, with, with two strands and I'm weaving it in and out. Um, and quite frankly, I think it works better in some places than it works in others. But it, as a whole, it works because it comes together rather nicely. So those are the two components I, I was interested in, which then le- led me to use quite different sources depending on what I wanted to figure out. And part of the problem is that we don't really have, in the West as far as I can tell, a really solid run of documents from Office 6 or dealing with Office 6. So I'm tr- I was trying to to put stuff together while using to quite some extent um, post-war documents, so mostly interrogations and um, U.S. investigations into the service. So you have this whole issue of what what do people say after the war? How is that different to what was actually going on during the war? Um, which opens a, an incredible can of worms, which is both fascinating and utterly annoying. <laughs> So what uh, uh, I know that we talked about before, Fond 500 was one of the places that you found a lot of material. There were also the memoirs with Schellenberg that you worked with, and then a whole lot of post-war documentation attempting to piece together who was responsible for what in 
the the SS intelligence service or the political intelligence service essentially? Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean the the interesting part is, and we talked about this before to to some extent, is Form Five Hundred, which is um, in in Russia in Moscow, which is part of what used to be the secret um, KGB archives, the Osoboy. And I worked with that only for for a few weeks, and I think there's there's so much more to head in in that particular collection. And I'm kind of hoping that someone is listening who would really like to delve into that and and work on that because I I think one can write fascinating, fascinating stories out of that one. Because as far as I can tell, those are to quite some extent the early earlier day-to-day documents on on Office 6 and the forerunner. I think um with leaning towards stuff that is happening in Eastern and Southeastern Europe. So that's what what the Red Army collected at the end of the war. Um, but I, I, was, I was fascinated by the documents I was able to see there. And there's much, much more to be had um, looking at day-to-day operations, but I also think at the structure of, of the service. I, I don't think that any sane person should be as interested in, in, in the granular, granular structure of the service as I was at, at a certain point. But if you want to figure that one out, I think that is a place to go because those are the contemporaneous documents. So there's much more to be had. And it's actually a form that is reasonably easy um, to get to. So it's in the, um, uh, what is it called nowadays? I think the Russian war archive or something like that. And most of the documents are microfilmed. So it's, it's, it's quite comfortable to work with. Not enough of a pitch. I'm trying to pitch this. <laughs> <laughs> well, why do you think that this collection hasn't been uh, investigated more fully yet? <clears throat> I think because mo- most people, I mean, there's plenty of stuff you can you can find in the in the West. And this particular Form Five Hundred, when people were first looking into it, so there's lots and lots of stuff there relating to to the Holocaust, relating to persecution, and so on and so forth. So there's um, quote unquote more. There are more pressing documents in there, if that makes sense. So the the first people who looked into this um, were um, George Browder, mm-hmm. and I'm going to get her name wrong. I think Rebecca Burling. I'm not a hundred percent sure, so don't quote me on that. Which is pretty funny saying that since we're on the radio. Right. Um, so when when those people went into that particular collection in the late 90s, mid 90s, something like that, when those collections were just opened, everybody was completely fascinated with the Holocaust-related material that one could find there. And obviously, this is quite important. So what everybody then said, what you can find in the write-ups, is basically people saying, oh, what you can also see there is material relating to our for six, and more or less left it at that. Um, so people have worked with it, but I don't think to quite some some to quite the extent that it um, that it is possible. The other thing is that um, I think very few people 
I mean, very few German historians are really falling over themselves to go to Moscow for seven months or something like that. I mean, I know that some of us are, but, um, and it's, it's absolutely not a hardship assignment, but, you know, if your choice, if you're sitting in the U.S. and, and your choice is between Berlin and Moscow, I think most people are going to say, yeah, I'll take Berlin. Um, so I think that is also part of it um, because you can you can tell a lot of stories from the documents you can find in Berlin and, and Washington. And it's this this collection that is since, since let's put it this way, a few people, including myself, have worked in it a, a little bit. So there is not quite this looking for good wood here, wood here. There's not quite a critical mass where people who are working on intelligence are saying, hey, I can't do that without looking at the Moscow stuff. Mm. We all know I can't do X without going to the National Archives. I can't do X without looking at the IWG stuff, uh, stuff at the National Archives or at the most recent release in the of the CIA files, which by now is almost, what, 10 or 12 years ago. I mean, everybody knows that. I don't think we, we have the same awareness about this particular collection in Moscow. Uh, so your advocacy for FON 500 is uh, an effort to create that critical mass? I, I would, yes, absolutely. I mean, um, I'm sure there's more great stuff in there. I mean, what I what I pulled out of this just to give you one example, what I, what I kept finding when I initially wrote the dissertation and wrote it, um, you know, the initial, the initial draft, the initial dissertation, but also the initial draft of the revised book, <clears throat> was based on on stuff in Washington. And what I kept kept finding is that there is this effort within. Office six to kind of get rid of the Auswärtigamt, or you know, try try to take over more and more responsibility. I I could pick that one up in the documents at the National Archives, the contemporaneous documents, but also in in post war interrogation. But it was kind of a hum, you know, this underlying hum, and I wasn't quite comfortable coming out saying this is what it is. Mm. And, and it is in Moscow that I found the documents where basically Schellenberg, Himmler, and a bunch of other people in September of 44, I think it's September, October, it might, it might start in late August, whatever, um, basically go, go in for concerted effort to do exactly that. So there is a document saying, let's collect all the materials, let's collect all the materials with, with which we can try to tell the foreign office at this particular point in time. Let's collect all of this, let's write a report, and let's see whether we can sway Hitler to get rid of Ribbentrop and basically have us take this over. So, you know, the, the, the two pieces came together, but it was the Moscow documents which really put kind of put the cherry on top of it and made me by far more comfortable with this argument because it was before it was this this notion of it, it is there, but I can't quite nail it to the wall. And the Moscow documents allowed me to nail that to the wall. Or there is a speech um, by, by Schellenberg during this, um, this big meeting to do in 
uh, it's I think in May of 1944. <clears throat> so Himmler gives a speech at this particular in, intelligence official meetings, and Schellenberg gives a speech. And this is for Schellenberg, it's one of the the first instance. Oh no, not the first instance, but it's one of the instances where we have a document where he actually talks about how he conceptualizes of the foreign intelligence service in a coherent fashion. So there's Schellenberg's speech, and there's also a speech by by Himmler, and um, who, who is it? Um, uh, Florian Altenhöhner, not Matraschka, and someone else have published annotated versions of this speech over the last um, two or three years. But this is all stuff that is coming out of the collection in Moscow. So, yeah, it's absolutely worth it. And I seem to have yammered on about this collection for, what, nine minutes and 40 seconds right now. Uh, no, that's <laughs> what you're here to do. So, uh, you, you raise the issue of Schellenberg, uh, the, the head of Office 6 and the, the political intelligence service. Your book worked a lot with his memoir, and he is a slippery fish. Yeah, that's putting it mildly, yeah? So... <laughs> I was wondering if you uh, like what, how do you approach a source like that critically? What about his memoir? How, how did you work with him? I guess. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. To just, to some extent, <clears throat> I approached his memoir from the perspective of it can't be believed because um I mean, for starters, there are various versions out there of those memoirs. <clears throat> and I think it would be a worthwhile exercise for someone who isn't me to really compare those various versions um, because they're, they're going to tell us a lot about what, pe what people are interested in in the post-war period. And what is really important to keep in mind with this memoir is that this memoir, which was published after he died, but which he wrote, obviously, before his death, was meant to sell. And it was meant to tap into post-war post West German interest and um, U.S. interest and, and, and British interest into Nazi stories. So um, th th there is quite a bit that is over-exaggerated or in other places underplayed, he's very much trying to sell a good story. And then you can you know, lay it to some extent against what he's saying in interrogations. You can lay it against um, what I call the earlier drafts of this story. So stuff he wrote immediately after the end of the war in Sweden. And, and you, you can see rather clearly I would I would argue where he's pushing this story of how he wants how he sees him, himself and how he wants the broader public to see him. So you know, as an upstanding national conservative, as um, as this what I sometimes call the thwarted bringer of peace, as a good diplomat. So he's he's trying very hard to 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 ditch the unsavory part of the spy master. So he's, he's trying to make himself into a good spy master, a, a very a good source of advice to to Himmler, and as as a diplomat who was trying to prevent wars, which very much goes with the stories 
um, West Germans are telling themselves um, in, in, in the 50s and, and early 60s. And, and some of that, uh, you, you can see how he constructs this, the story over several years and how he starts constructing it in the interviews, which, which makes the, all of that quite dubious in my account. Um, but, but also an intriguing study of how, how, we, how people narrate their lives. And how he's, how he's trying to make sense of it. So uh, my approach to quite some extent was to be extremely critical. And um, the, the, the closer you look, or the closer one looks at particular incidents, the more you can find patterns how Schellenberg is, 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 is lying and obfuscating and, and talking around issues. It's also very clear that um, he takes lots and lots of license when it becomes very clear that there is nobody else who, nobody else out there who will be able to say, well, this is not how this happened. And he is, is very good at telling a good story. So, you know, he, he talks a lot about his interactions with um, Himmler, Heydrich, and Kaltenbrunner, and those are all people who are who are dead. So he has the authority over the story, and he very much uses that. So would you say that uh, his memoir tells us much more about post-war Schellenberg than it does about his behavior uh, during the time? I I think it tells us more about. Po- not, not more. It tells us different stories, I would say. I mean, it tells us a uh, story, and it's not even post-war um, Schellenberg. It's kind of the, 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 the way he sees himself. So in, in that way, he is consistent. And then you can pick it up for, for certain things that happened during the war. Um, but I try to, as much as I use it in, in certain chapters, I try not to lean on it too heavily um, because I... I see the problems with this particular source um, so vividly that I find it very problematic to trust him when when he says, well, and then I did this, and then I did the other thing, because invariably those are the stories that are putting him in the best light. Isn't it tempting, though, when you're asking a question and he is answering it outright to, to just accept it? It's it's in, it's incredibly tempting, um, and and there's a the bunch a bunch of other historians, actually brilliant historians, who who are doing it that way, and I'm I'm not even a hundred percent sure whether I'm a hundred percent right, but I I think we are well advised to be more careful. Just because, because he, he, he is telling a story there and he, he tells this story for a reason. So he, he sees himself as a good man. He's trying to, to sell himself as a good man to the Allies. So, so after the war, first, first in Sweden and, and, and then in Nuremberg. And he, he is, is trying to get back into the game for quite some time there in um, after he's released from prison, although he's, he's quite grievously ill. So I think one really needs to keep that one in mind, in particular if he answers the question you're asking. So um, 
it's awfully tempting. And um, I'm, sometimes I, I think, you know, maybe, maybe I, I see him as, as more of a liar than he was, and that is already pretty impressive. He was an impressive liar. And it's, it's also, I mean, to, to some extent, it's quite fascinating how, to see how he, how he fiddles with the margins, what stories he tells, how, to te- how he tells them, how he knows how to, how to tell a good story very early on. I mean, it's, it's, it's very clear, say, in, um, in, in May of 45 already, when he's meeting with, um, what's the dude's name? Reigns, who, who is, um, with the U.S. Embassy, I think he's with the U.S. Embassy. Don't quote me on that. In in Stockholm, and he already Schaumberg already knows what which stories are going to to get the interest. So you know he he teases with information he claims to have about Japan. Um, he has very little actual information on Japan, but this, this is a way he's selling himself um, to to the Americans, which makes a lot of sense. Then he teases with um, very early on with in, I'm not sure whether in that particular meeting, but he teases with information on 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 the Heydrich and Kaltenbrunner. You know, he he is the consummate insider there, and he's willing to talk, and he talks like a waterfall, and he. So he, he he tells a scary Heidrich story everybody wants to hear, and he describes Kaltenbrunner as the Austrian hick he was with bad teeth and bad manners. So it's um, it's it's quite intriguing how how he plays to audiences, and there, there's there's something fascinating about watching that one play out. I'm just curious, though, because uh, there's there's obviously art that's involved in this, right? In source interpretation, yeah. And and the skepticism that you're laying out up front is always important about because you have to approach sources critically rather than naively, right? But I'm curious when you're looking at someone like Schellenberg, who has such a clear ulterior motive, uh, how how do you? How do you decide what to take from it? Uh, how do you how do you sort of proof the source and and decide which things are meaningful and reflect an aspect of the truth, if not the whole truth? Uh, Schellenberg's interpretation of it, or how he wants to represent it, at least. And then, what's an outright fabrication? Yeah, that's kind of the sixty four thousand dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it's it's the best. It's the question that historians must always wrestle with, right? So, I, I, I you, you know, they, this is this is so non non scientific to some extent, but I think if you're delving into a topic as deeply as one does for for something like this, there's a certain gut instinct one develops, and that is non scholarly. Um, but especially if if you if you're in this halfway biographical treatment there there is a certain level of instinct and um i kind of my my you know my 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 german trained ranker trained inner historian is is just about you know running screaming into the into the night um but but i think I, I think that is that is part of it. At a certain point, you ha- there's enough of a critical mass of material you have read from a person and about a person 
to to know what sounds right what what is most likely agreeable then then you check it against as many other sources as you can i'm i'm not telling you any secrets here but there's kind of you know the the double checking as as much as it's possible and another thing um and i've been thinking about this this quite a big bit lately is the question of the authorial voice you know how am i presenting this so what i try to do in in my book is to quite some extent to say you know this is what schellenberg says as opposed to you know i'm the i'm i'm, I'm the historian who knows everything mm-hmm to, to to really be careful about what what Schellenberg says and and what 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 I know or what is truth to to find a loaded term here. Um, so I think part of it is is also in the presentation. So there's this story I heard about a, a famous Sovietologist or Sovietist or whatever the the sort of Russian studies group through the Cold War called themselves. Uh, where he said uh, he had a graduate student who came up to him and said, like, you know, how do I, you know, what's the grand secret master, right? And uh, he, he said, uh, I read Pravda until my nose twitches. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's absolutely it. I, 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 th- I mean, that's, that's not all of it, but there is something to be said for that. And, and I think... Um, <clears throat> I mean, as historians, it makes sense to to acknowledge that because um, they, they, uh, you get to the point where when this is what one needs to not not rely on completely, but it's part of the equation, and I think we need to talk about it. Well, I think I I I know that there's a lot of criticism of that because it is a matter of art and not something that can be quantified easily or even discussed qualitatively easily. But I, I really think that that element of you know, Einfühlung or whatever is uh, you, you develop a sense for how an institution functions and what its routines are. And you can, they, it has a voice and this doesn't just apply to memoirs. Right. And so, yeah, it- you, you, sorry, you're absolutely right. That's that's exactly what I'm talking about. Keep going. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. But they have a character, and so when something out of character arises, you can tell. Oh, this is important. This is a change. This is a this is a turning point. And then you you have those kind of salient moments that you can look to uh, where where you and then you can begin to trace the changes that lead up to that. But uh, there is an element of familiarity is necessary you can't you can't understand these things outside outside of context so i'm I'm just i'm really happy that somebody else said that so (laughs) you know it's 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 so strange i think because we we are so trained to you know um, i mean especially those of us who who do the quote-unquote hardcore archival work you know we we we're so trained in in this way of if you just look at enough documents the story will fall together kind of the big puzzle but, but there are also yeah, always those those leaps of of faith you need to need to take, um, and I think I think we don't talk about that enough as historians. 
I mean, that's why I was was so excited to talk to you about that because we we, we try to, I mean, as as much as we um, complain about Ranka, we 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 are still pretending that this can be done to quite some extent. Um, but the once you get down to it and 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 talk to people who work with with documents, you you get to the point where they say, "Well, I just knew." Because it's as as you said, it's it's the voice of the institution, it's the the voice of the of the person you you're studying. You 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 just know it. Empathy as a methodology, though, is quite difficult to to deal with. It's something that interrogators are definitely sort of trained in deploying, but I think it's something that this sort of tradition of scientific professional history from the late 19th century just is not comfortable dealing with yeah and i i, I mean i want to be very clear there's no empathy between uh, I, I have to watch <laughs> so I, that's, that's oh, empathy not sympathy i i know what you mean when you say empathy and it is the right word but it's um i'm still, I'm still somewhat uncomfortable using using that particular word in in this context, and I maybe because sometimes I'm thinking that my my treatment or my my dealing with Schaumburg was so much led by or too much led by my contempt. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm I'm sometimes wondering about that. You know, in in the way what we what we talked about earlier, am I am I so contemptuous, so critical that I'm overcorrecting in, in, in uh, that, that I'm that I'm too too negative so that I'm not seeing the things where he might not have been lying so am I looking for for, for lies ways actually closer than the truth a little closer to the truth than I than I give him credit for so you know that's that's this interesting thing what happens when you when you deal with Nazis too much yeah absolutely people you you, you really don't have a lot of lot of understanding for and and try to get yourself into into the frame of mind but at the same time feel like you wanting to take a shower every 15 minutes <laughs> uh-huh. whenever whenever we're approaching what nazis have said particularly in in post-war sources i think the right way to go about it is to just assume that they are lying until you find evidence yeah. uh, that shows the contrary uh, but all the same, if we assume that all Nazis are evil liars to their core, then then we can't really understand their motivation. And without understanding their motivation and, and what makes them tick, uh, how are we to uh, approach all of these other documents? You are absolutely right. But I think those are those are two different issues to quite some extent. Because I can, I can get my head around his motivations just fine. Does that make sense? Well, yes, but Chris and I have had this argument before about whether or not you can, whether or not to approach uh, the, the where the line between skepticism and uh, cynicism lies in reading sources critically. Yeah. And uh, my my approach and what I usually argue with Chris about is that you you have to accept what the source says, uh, trust but verify, I suppose. Whereas um, 
I mean, Chris, like you say, like you need to approach with the assumption that they're lying to you. I think I would, I would go, I would tend in Chris's direction there. So, so my underlying assumption tends to be either lying or that at the very best putting the very best spin on events that cannot be made to go away. Mm So I am. Um, I, I, I tend tend to be quite 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 critical there, um, and less trusting than what you just laid out. Well, when I say uh, yes, but perhaps I should clarify what I mean because uh, I think trust is probably a strong word, but uh, in the sense of taking what they say at face value, and I I think that like what you're talking about is absolutely correct about sort of portrayal and spin and selective representations of the past. Like you focus on, you see sources focus, particularly after the war, on elements of the narrative that remain acceptable in the current political climate or correspond to what values they believe that the audience holds or things like this. So my my experience has been that when like when I approach the Gestapo documents with the the perspective of the secondary literature and everything that I had read and what I was expecting to find, uh, what I encountered was this whole separate uh, what what constituted the majority of their work had been overlooked because it did not conform to uh, the 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 post-war narrative of aberrations and the focus on the persecution of minorities. And so, and and like that specific experiences have been extrapolated to be general or minority experience have been extrapolated to be majority experience. And I, I found that like, I found that when I would go through sources, policy documents that I had read other historians analyze, they would read the first paragraph but then they would totally ignore the second paragraph because it didn't it, it it presented what appeared to be a paradox and because they weren't approaching the documentation through the worldview of the Nazis that there was this whole whole other side to policing that Chris and I have talked about on other podcasts like this idea of, of selective enforcement that they were just totally unaware of so I mean but 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 that's exactly the the reason why your book is so exciting. So you, you know this this uh, shifting shifting out of out of the paradigm um, that 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 makes it so cool. What 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 you're working on? Sorry, I interrupted you. You were in the middle of a sentence. Keep going. Sorry. <laughs> No, no. Well, I, that was, I was just, uh, I think I, the, the defense rests your honor, but, uh, that, that's just kind of, uh, there's, there's, uh, I, I don't know. And, and that's kind of the struggle is that you, you can't reflect the sources uncritically and you can't be, you, you need the skepticism because otherwise you just end up reproducing the, the Nazi narrative. And that's not what you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be presenting a critical narrative, right? So, 
yes, but I, I think to some extent we are talking about two different issues here. How so? Um, so, so, so of, of course, we, we, we are supposed to look at, at documents, um, sources cr critically and, um, you know, with, with healthy, healthy suspicion, what, what have you not. But what, what you're talking about here to quite some extent is also that we, um, you know, need, need, need to look at the document as a whole. And, and, you know, we all like to, or we all have a tendency, I would assume it's all of us and not only me, to kind of hone in on the thing we are looking for. Yeah. Um, so so we, we need to take this broader view. Um, and we, we need to be able to say, well, this one thing is in the historiography that doesn't make it right. And and that's one of the reasons why I always think it's it's so important to have another look at documents we have looked at, uh, you know, for people have looked at for the last seventy years, because you see different things, uh, with different different sensibilities and and w with a different with with a new focus we have nowadays. I mean, um, the example you just gave, I think, is to some extent um, quite perfect because. In the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, I mean, we, we, everybody is focused on the, the, the persecution of, of racial and political enemies and not on plain old policing, mm -hmm. which, which, which has racialized and, and, and political overtones, but there is still a difference there. But I think that is also an issue of of the historiography shifting or our, our interest shifting more than more than that it has to do with how people look at documents but to your point about uh, to your point about this uh, uh, you know your, a point you made earlier do the questions you're asking not shape what what mindset you're bringing to the documents when you're reading them right like the the questions that you're asking when you're looking for what you're finding it's, uh, I don't know. Sorry, I'm flailing about you know, here. <laughs> no, I, I, I think, you know, we're we here at kind of those, those crucial issues of how do we approach documents. Documents, okay, we, we, we're not supposed to go in with a thesis. Um, most of us don't do that, but we have something in the back of, my, of, of our minds, what we kind of expect to find. It's just the way it is. We don't necessarily talk about that all that frequently. So that, that is step one and also a certain awareness of, you know, well, this is what I'm doing and then I know that I have that in my mind, but still I need to need to look at the at the document as a whole and and remain open for st stuff that is in there that I'm not necessarily looking for, listening for. Um, does it work out all the time? No. <clears throat> but but it helps to kind of, you know, when you when you get up in the morning before you go to the archives to, to I don't know, write that in the palm of your hand, also read the other stuff. Um, because sometimes, sometimes we don't do that. And now I'm kind of, you know, petering off um, 
it of course is impossible to go into a source with no preconceptions of what you might find. I mean, we're human beings. Uh, we can't unknow or unlearn something. Uh, so you're going to have ideas in your mind when you come to a source. And I think that that is a good thing. We should always be open to have what we believe challenged. Uh, but you, you can't just read a piece of a document. You can't even just read the whole document. You need to go beyond that. You need to have some understanding of what the audience of that document is, what the purpose of it is. And that means that you need to think about the relationship between the author and his or her audience. It is very useful if you have some idea of what the motivations of the author might be. And then you can find places where, where that is challenged. But you have to have a baseline to go off of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what you're, what you're describing is, um, is, is basic source analysis we all do, you know, source criticism or whatever um, we call it nowadays. But what I what I find so interesting, why I find this uh, this discussion so interesting, is that we obviously as historians, it's kind of second nature. nature we do that anyhow. Uh, <clears throat> but I think it's really useful to to talk about this more frequently, the way we are, we are doing it right now, um, because they are all those kind of the 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 the, the pitfalls we don't necessarily talk about we or we don't write about in our books um <clears throat> and in, in in our articles because it's it's kind of assumed everybody knows how to do that but we all have different ways of how to approach that and and i think this is just um, on a very basic level a worthwhile discussion because many of the things we we are doing that are so second nature to to us I find it interesting. I mean, when I when I teach this, and, and students are supposed to write um, in their what is it third year here, their first research paper, and and source analysis and what you're describing there is second nature to me. And trying to teach that at a point when the students are. Um, Think of them as as kind of I'm, I'm a third year history student. A student I know how, how all of this works, and this is fairly new to them. It's ridiculously hard to explain what they are supposed to be doing, and how one does that properly, and what one needs to evaluate, and that all of this is supposed to happen, but very little of that makes it on the into their papers. Um. So there, there is this, this this element of of black magic involved, there, and I think it makes sense to talk about that black magic a little bit more openly. Well, yeah, because part of the trick is that there's not a formula for source analysis, and different kinds of sources benefit from different kinds of approaches. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and I, I always love the. I mean, what, what, uh, Chris, what, what, you, what you are doing there when, when people go back to sources, a bunch of people have looked at already and say, but hang on a second, isn't there this other thing going on as well? Um, you know, it's, it's one, of, one of those really cool moments because then you have, you have this moment where people think, you know, holy cow, I should have noticed that before. Um, 
but but that is also the progression of historiography. So, you know, more power to you. There's also this entire element of this that's uh, like it's a question. We all have a different source in our mind that we are not making explicit while we are making these kind of vague platonic ideal generalizations about what the appropriate approach to sources are. And uh, like, I think there's this sort of underlying question of uh, like Chris has said, the, the, the critical reading of relationship and motive and w ultimately what the appropriate level of skepticism when approaching that source is. But then there's also these huge differences between, you know, depending on which source base that you're working with, depending on who the author is, and particularly whether it's contemporary or whether it's produced after the fact. Like what I'm saying, I, like when, Chris, like you're generally thinking of post-war sources when you say those types of things, right? Well, yes. I mean, I, I work with a lot of post-war sources, uh, particularly court records, uh, but I, it applies just as much to contemporary documents uh, when one office sends something to another office uh, they're they're doing it towards a purpose sometimes towards cross purposes and of course we always have to keep the, all those things in mind right but after the war there's a fundamentally different set of ulterior motives and that are involved in the production of the documents and people have a, a vested interest in not representing in, in representing a very different truth as it were ah yes it's, it's yeah <laughs> it's, it's just I, I, I find this stuff endlessly fascinating but um, what did you say earlier Ryan um, that we have those ideas documents in our head or what, what, what was it uh, that we have we have a certain set of documents in our mind when we're making generalizations about what appropriate approaches are to source critique I think because like for me it's police inter it's it's Gestapo records right like that's that's my bread and butter and so uh, and and policy documents those are the two things that sort of were coming before my mind's eye you know, strangely enough, and that I think that has to go has to do with my educational background. Um, when when I think about that, I, I think about this very almost um, you know in a in a technical fashion because um, we we were doing the the source analysis type of thing in in high school, mm -hmm. and. But it was broken down into the various steps. So, you know, you, you had your exam and it's like, you know, the, f the first three questions, and it took me years to figure that one out. The th first three questions were basically the external analysis and then the next few questions were the internal analysis. And when I think about um, source analysis, I go back to what 12th grade high school thinking, you know, am I covering all the points? Mm -hmm. So I have this um, this very technical thing in the back of my head and then I look at the actual document I'm dealing with um, at any given point in time and I kind of you know go through the register what I need to do and all of that jumbles in, in my head and I don't quite have the yeah 
Maybe it also has to do with with the various different sources I've looked at over the years that I don't quite have the document where I'm thinking this is my my baseline document. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because it's um, but now I'm thinking, you know, what would be my baseline document nowadays? Maybe maybe a an interrogation, but no, I don't know. You know, this is going to keep me up at night. <laughs> because, I, like, what I find is that you you ha- you always have those questions. Like Chris pointed out, the, the sort of who's the audience? You know, what what is the motive? This kind of critical approach to it. Yeah. But then at the same time, th- those questions and your understanding of documents begin to be shaped as you develop your understanding of the the as you called it the authorial voice of the institution, the individual whatever you you begin to understand uh how pravda writes until your nose twitches right like yeah but that a level of skepticism that's involved in that approach uh changes as you understand what's going on i suppose like when you first encounter with a set of sources is totally different than after you spend several hundred hours working with very similar documents you you have a completely different experience of them. Oh yeah, I mean one one of the f- most fascinating things I think right right now for me is to go back to some sources, or even because that the damn revision process took me took me so long. So going back to to documents a year or two or three later, and looking at them um, with not quite fresh eyes, fresh share eyes, uh, slightly different eyes. And all of a sudden I was honing into different phrases, different information, um, d- different everything. It was almost as if somebody put a new document in front of me, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, I think also talks to, or speaks to what historians do in a fascinating way, because it, I mean, we, we as historians develop, the field develops, and um, our, our thinking about issues de- develops, and sometimes I, sometimes I think that, that to some extent people should go back and rewrite their book from 10 years ago and see whether they would still come to the con- same conclusions, mm-hmm. looking at the documents again. Um because we, we 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 do switch our 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 focus switches, and and what what is crucial in a document, you know, at one point in time might not be the the most crucial thing you get out of it. Dealing with the same topic a few years later, and now I have the feeling as if I'm telling everybody you know history is so unstable we don't know what we're doing actually we know what we are doing but we 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 also need to i think speak about it more write about it more i don't know well when you're that close to a topic you're intimately familiar with what the difficulties are yeah and and that tends to get it it is it is the uh it is the nature of professions to hide those difficulties from the uninitiated, lest the guild be called into question. You're absolutely right. I mean, maybe that's a reason why I'm sitting in my office here and turning bead red, thinking I shouldn't be saying that. Um, but it's, I think this is a really important part of the discussion we should be having 
more of in, 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 and also in a, in a really public forum. What do we do? How do we do that? I mean, especially for those of us who, who are quite source-based. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's compare mythologies. Right. <laughs> Something along those lines. Did I just, I just got a Leonard Cohen reference into this interview. This is scary. Congratulations. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Congratulations. All right. Well, now that you've, you've let the, the cat out of the bag uh, about the, the difficulties that uh, we all face, uh, maybe we should uh, talk about some of those difficulties uh, in a little more detail. So th- th- let me ask you, you, you deal with this question of ideology. Yeah. To me, accessing ideology, particularly in post-war sources, is, is so difficult uh, because there's that, that motivation to, to cover it up. How do you go after an issue like that? Is it possible to get a firm grip on on ideology in post-war sources? Or is this always going to be something that, that we're coming back to and and rethinking and reworking? No. I, I don't think it's possible. I mean, you, I, I think you can pick it up in, in, in Schoenberg's case and in, in some of his statements, uh, the things he, he assumes to be right, assumptions... That, that are just there and that you can see when he when he talks about quite ordinary things um, which is it's 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 his assumption that in order to get rid of the ex-wife um, the easiest way is to um, is to get her um, a, a tailor shop and that tailor shop is is actually an area nice tailor shop so you know that you, you can you can pick up things there um so 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 i think it's in those and, and that is obviously one of the more blatant examples but but it's in those small issues that you can pick up, up something about ideology but I also think that if you want to be, however critical I am of Schellenberg, if you want to be fair as a historian, you also need to tell the reader, you know, where, where, where you're making an argument or where, where it is an interpretation that this is not this is not set in stone, as, especially when it comes to making pronouncements about some somebody's ideological leanings. Actually, especially when it came to talking about um, Schellenberg's ideology, I had quite a big of, of a back and forth with one of the book reviewers. They asked me to push that further, and I pushed it as, as far as I was comfortable because um, I didn't think that my statements should be just based on my assumptions, but I should have enough of his statements to actually you know, make a shoe out of it. So um, it's it, it's 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 incredibly frustrating, and I I think the 
the best way we can go about it is to be as open with our evidence as possible and also say, well, evidence, um, we don't have enough evidence to take it a step further as much as we want it. When someone tells us what they believe, should we accept that or do we, we also need to look at their behavior? Yes. I mean, first of all, I mean, as you said earlier, it's about motivations. When are you telling me what you believe? In, in which context? But you absolutely look at behavior. And I think it's actually in the, in the, in the behavior. What is a, fan, a fancy term we use nowadays? Social practices? Um, that, 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 that you, you see what people are made of. Um, so yes, it's, it's it's absolutely both. But uh, but but then I I think what I said earlier applies to that as well in terms of his behavior. What what have I his or her behavior? What have I um, firmed up in a way that I can actually use it? And where am I taking it? a step beyond the hardcore provable, and then it's only fair to tell my audience that I'm doing that. So Chris and I were talking about just this issue the other day when we were kind of game planning for this conversation. And the the subject of the exception that proves the rule came up, it, particularly in context of post-work court records and uh, denazification files that when you begin to sift through these things, you keep coming up against these very carefully constructed, self-interested narratives that have an explicit, that are a defense strategy. But then every now and then you will come up again, you will find the slip that gives you this sort of insight into how what the institutional thinking was at the time or how how the day-to-day functioned before uh, like the, the old habits the freudian slip comes out right um not not to make the mistake of psychohistory here right but to, uh the the example that i was talking about was a, a member of the dusseldorf gestapo talking about his motives for uh, for remaining with the service after 1933 when it all got rolled into, when it got transferred from the criminal police to the secret state police. And he talked about the late 1930s and he specifically said, it was here that I came to my opinions about the Spartacist subhumanity. Winter mentioned to Bingo. <laughs> and this was this one slip yeah, this one slip in the middle of a denazification that was intended to portray that he was, uh, it was sort of this crack because, uh, after the war, anti-communism was still acceptable. And so you see that all the time, but you don't see these elements of sort of the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy and the, the racialized thinking around communism. So, um, yeah, but that, that sort of gave you this little window into how this was discussed in the institution at the time. 
Yes. And whether or not that's valid as representative as a, of a wider culture, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and, and the, the, those are those are the the cracks, as you call them, rather beautifully, where you where you can, you, you know, you can really make hay from them because it tells you about that person, but it also te- I think tells you about the broader culture. I mean, with Schellenberg, he had this really strange document. Um, so he goes through this fairly nasty divorce in. 38 or 39, doesn't make a difference before before the war. Um, and in this context of, of the divorce, he writes this incredibly self-serving document about um, about his, his, his wife, his, his marriage, and how it's all just um, everybody's, how everybody is mean to him. It has this really incredibly whiny voice. <clears throat> And it's um, it's Schellenberg very much unvarnished, right? And this and the same tone of voice I can find in some of the post-war um, interrogations, and you can find it a little bit in the memoirs as well, and in the in the stuff he wrote that. Um, came to be part of the memoirs and i think that is a similar thing you know there they you see there you see kind of uh, you know schellenberg in his in his, his i don't know in his bathrobe and his slippers as opposed to the the, the polished version he puts out he, he puts out the public performance he puts out and for me i'm listening for that voice was was one of the points where I kept thinking, well, he, here, he, here, he is a real Schellenberg, a Schellenberg, or closer to it, or this is closer to his real voice, if that makes any sense. And also, I mean, the way how he just uh, how how he construes himself in this what I call the d- divorce narrative, he construes himself as the victim. And the same notion of, of of being the wonderful person who who by the machinations of, of others became a victim, um, I can then find in many of the post-war documents. So there you, you kind of get to the core of this fellow in, in a very intriguing way. And I think that is a, is a similar crack like the one you were describing a moment ago. And on that note, we draw this episode of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. The conversation with Katrin actually went on for another half hour. We moved from our discussion about sources into a larger discussion of her work on the role of gender in intelligence gathering, and specifically the life and times of Hildegard Beetz. Hildegard Beetz was a famous journalist in post-war Germany who actually was involved in the operations of the SD and what at that time was Office 6 in Italy. So she is an absolutely fascinating character and Katrin has some very interesting insights into the role of gender in intelligence work. We also got around to some discussion about the role of gender in political policing and what how and how you find it in the files of the Gestapo. So maybe not next week, but at some point, you can look forward to a shorter half-hour-long episode when we have some backlog on the news to fill up that will discuss this incredibly interesting article and round out a little bit more of this source discussion. With that, 
We'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then.